Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at the Anton Scalia Law School at George Mason University. NSI was founded three years ago to fulfill a fundamental gap in academia by standing up for a robust American security posture and providing both reasonable and realistic and actionable recommendations to policymakers in the executive and legislative branches. To achieve that aim, this year's focus were fo- this year we're focused on two key issues, countering China's rise and the maintaining American technology innovation leadership. Today is the con- continuing part of our conversation about confronting China's challenge to the world order. Just two weeks ago, we had a great event with Michelle Flournoy um, and Ali Velshi, and we're excited today to have Bethany Allen Abrahamian and Randy Shriver to talk to us about these issues. Obviously, geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific is heating up. We've seen the uh, involvement of uh, Chinese jets entering Taiwanese aerospace, airspace during the uh, recent visit of Alex Azar to the region. Uh, we also saw the, the uh, budding uh, border conflict between India and China. Um, so today, uh, we have Bethany with us, who is the China reporter at Axios, before joining Axios, Bethany serves as the lead reporter for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists China Cables Project, a major leak of classified Chinese government documents revealing the inner workings of the mass internment camps at the, in the Xinjiang province. Previously, Bethany was an editor and the contributing reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine and a national security reporter at the Daily Beast. Bethany also spent four years in China reporting on events there. The Honorable Randy Shriver is chairman of the board of the Project 2049 Institute, most recently, Randy served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs from January 2018 to December 31st, 2019. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. From, and from 2001-2003 in the Bush administration, he served as Chief of Staff and Senior Policy Advisor for the Deputy Secretary of State. From 94 to 98, Randy served as the Office of Secretary of Defense, including as the Senior Official Responsible for Data Management of, of U.S. Bilateral Relations with the PLA, and the bilateral and security military relationships with Taiwan. I'd like to thank Bethany and Randy for joining us. Bethany, over to you. Thanks so much for that uh, introduction, Jamil. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, one of the things that really, I think one of the first things that as a, someone who watches China, uh, I, I noticed from the Trump administration in, in the early, the first year of the Trump administration was uh, the emphasis on the Indo-Pacific, you know, the the changing of the, you know, the name to now it's Indo-PACOM. That was the first sense that I really got that the administration was really going to make this region a big focus and a new focus uh, and, you know, maybe even approach it with a new sort of holistic way. And we have definitely seen since then uh, a growing emphasis from the administration on China, on China's role in the region. and to some extent, the U.S. role in the region. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with Randy today, um, speaking with you about your, um, your vision and your ideas for what the U.S. should be doing in the Indo-Pacific region, um, especially considering the challenges that, that China is, is really bringing to the region. So I'd like to start out by asking you if you could briefly lay out what you see as the biggest challenges that the U.S. faces in the Indo-Pacific as China's power and assertiveness is continuing to grow. 
Well, thanks, Bethany, and thanks, Jamil, and everybody at uh, NSI. Appreciate the opportunity to address this topic today with uh, distinguished colleagues and uh, what I what I see is a, a growing list of attendees. So thank you for that. Um, look, I think the the biggest challenge for not only the United States, but our allies and like-minded partners who value the free and open qualities of the Indo-Pacific region is an emerging China that has very different aspirations and, and different uh, views of what the regional security and economic and, and political architecture should be. Those are clashing visions, but more than clashing visions, China's uh, acting in ways to pursue those interests, more assertive behavior uh, with the aim of trying to disrupt that free and open order. So that's the biggest challenge uh, that we all face. For us, we have the additional challenges of maintaining our focus. I mean, I, I, I think you're right, Bethany, that our strategic documents, everything that the Trump administration laid out does identify the region as a priority and the China challenge as a, as a priority, but we also have a history of being a, a bit of a capricious power and can have our attention diverted. Um, I know when I was at the Pentagon, I worried an awful lot about uh, problems with Iran and would that be the uh, death of our national defense strategy and keeping China a priority. Um, we have resource constraints. Um, we've benefited from, we the Department of Defense, I should say, have benefited from uh, very significant investments the last couple of years, uh, but DOD budgets do uh, follow the laws of gravity. What goes up will come down, and I think that's true, whether it's a Trump administration or a Biden administration. Uh, and I think we also have some work to do on our trade and economic policy. I think the the Trump administration came in, uh, President Trump and Secretary Clinton had run against TPP. He pulled out of TPP. But I think for a long time we did a repeal but not a replace. We said we were going to get out of TPP and do bilaterals. And those have been a little slow in coming. And I do think the trade and economic piece has to be there. We can't just be a security presence in order to uh, pursue our interests in the region. We have, to have, we have to have a comprehensive approach. And I think it's coming together with things like the BUILD Act and with some of the bilateral trade work we're doing, but I, I think it's a work in progress. Thank you for that overview. Um, one of the really kind of shocking things this year to me was the outbreak of the border dispute between China and India. Now, India plays this sort of interesting role, I would say, in the minds of people who focus on the Indo-Pacific, Indo because I think some people keep waiting for, you know, India to join the, the U.S., you know, led order there with, you know, as a democracy, someone that may, a country that may not share the same interests as China. And especially with this border dispute, it really seems to have driven a wedge between India and China. Talk to us about India's role in the Indo-Pacific and especially its relationship with China and possibilities for future engagement with the U.S. Sure. No, it's a, it's a great question and, and good points about the border dust up. And in, in fact, this was the second in three years, if you remember the Doklam crisis uh, a couple of years back. So um, a, a point of historic tension, but it does seem to be coming to the fore more and more frequently. Um, look, I, I know that uh, India jealously guards its so-called non-aligned status. Um, it's, it, it's a point of pride and they talk about it a lot, but uh, we oftentimes come out of meetings and, and think, well, we know you say you're not aligned, but it's hard to find something we're not actually aligned on. And I think um, the truth of the matter is that because of the, the China challenge, how we see the strategic landscape, how we see the challenges, 
there's a lot of convergence there. And, and that convergence has allowed us to build out the relationship in ways that are more meaningful, including on the defense side, uh, military sales, more complex exercising and training, uh, more operational cooperation, uh, tracking PLA vessels, for example, and handing them off to one another. Um, I, I, look, I think the Indians are more focused on the Indian Ocean part of the Indo-Pacific region, and that's understandable, um, but we need help there too. Uh, given the, the nature of the challenge um, that the, the PLA and the PRC are presenting, uh, we, we are absolutely fine with the Indians putting great focus on the um, uh, regional commons of the Indian Ocean region and the surrounding states. Uh, they've got a lot more um, history and influence in some of those states. We're a smaller but important presence. And so I think, again, to, to do things to preserve the free and open quality, help countries protect their sovereignty, help them be able to make decisions from capital free from coercion, we're happy to have India play a bigger role. I think over time, sure, we'd like to see them more active in the Western Pacific, the, the Pacific part of Indo-Pacific. Um, they, they've rhetorically changed from a look east policy to an act east policy. We welcome that uh, and, and we see them doing more things like providing uh, security assistance and training in Southeast Asia. Uh, we welcome all that and, and um, I think we're, we're taking some important steps, for example, on the, on the quad. We have a, we've had at least meetings at the foreign ministry side. Um, we haven't had uh, the kind of cooperation on the DOD side we'd like, but then again, at this year's Malabar, we have Australia, Japan, India, and the United States exercising with one another. To the untrained eye, that looks an awful lot like the quad. I'm glad you brought up the quad. I was going to ask about that, but you, you talked about it um, anyway. One thing, um, so, you know, people view China often as, I, honestly, I think it's maybe believing China's own propaganda as being, um, you know, for win-win and, uh, you know, not trotting on the rights of others and not needlessly stirring up diplomatic conflict. It's hard to square that view of China with how they've let the relationship with India really spiral out of control. And you know, India's reaction has been really shocking um, for, I think, not shocking, but, but interesting. I mean, for example, banning dozens of Chinese apps um, and just, you know, really pulling away. I think this does a big, it really deals a big blow to China's image among um, non-Western countries, countries that have a, a colonial heritage, which makes them a bit standoffish from the West. Do you have any sense of how it's come to this, how, you know, China under Xi Jinping has, has let itself get to this place? Well, I think it's, it's mostly a product of their behavior and their actions. And when their behavior and actions are so out of step with their rhetoric, uh, people come around to understand from an objective point of view what China's ambitions really are and what those ambitions could mean for their own interests. Um, we've had an uh, easier time in, in some countries rather than others. Um, uh, a place like Vietnam that is, has a uh, very troubled history with China, uh, right now, uh, or I should say this year, polls I saw earlier, the United States as a country polls 94% favorable in Vietnam. China polls in the single digits. So I think that's, that's a pretty strong statement of how at least one important country in the region views us. Uh, but I think if you, if you look at polling throughout the region, there's a lot of suspicion uh, related to China. There's suspicion about the United States as well, but most of the suspicion directed at us our questions about our, our wherewithal and our, our political will and our staying power. They're not fundamental questions about our ambitions and would, would we have those 
country's interests at, in, our, in our, uh, uh, minds as we develop our own approaches. Um, so I think that's also a qualitative difference. It's, you know, the, the suspicions about China are very uh, foundational about threats to their national interests. I think Vietnam is an interesting case, especially compared to the Philippines. I mean, on the, on the face of it, you know, they, they have a, as you said, Vietnam is especially popularly really afraid of China in many ways, view it as a threat. Um, and the Philippines, um, you know, Duterte has really aligned with China in many ways. You would think it would be opposite given our history with, you know, with the war in Vietnam and given our pretty friendly, um, our, our often pretty friendly influence in relationship with the Philippines. Yet it, it's flipped. What, what, where has the U.S. gone wrong in our relationship with the Philippines? And what have we done right in our relationship with Vietnam? Well, it's a good question, Bethany, but I, I might quibble a little bit because um, uh, it's like the quote, you know, it's like the music of Wagner. It's a little better than it sounds. I think our relationship with the Philippines is, is a little better than it sounds. I think we have uh, issues with the president himself. Uh, president Duterte is unconventional and, and uh, has views that I think are out of step with even his own people about the United States and the alliance. As an alliance and as a country in the Philippines, we poll between the mid and high 80s, and that's remained true during the Duterte presidency. If you look, I don't want to, I, I sometimes hesitate to say things like this because I don't want to get any officials in the Philippines in any, any trouble, but uh, if you look at Secretary of Defense Lorenzana, uh, arguably the most pro-U.S. Secretary of Defense they've had. He lived in the United States for 17 years. His kids live here. Um, he's a, a real champion of the alliance. And I think if you look what's happened from the time Duterte came into power to now, we've actually surpassed status quo ante in terms of our defense cooperation. You probably uh, noted uh, Secretary Pompeo's statement on the South China Sea and whether or not the mutual defense treaty applied. Um, we've done more in terms of expanding our uh, presence through the, the counterterrorism campaign, uh, particularly the routing of the insurgents in Marawi City. Um, we've, we've, uh, expanded uh, access opportunities through something like ECTA. Um, so, you know, I think it's a little better than it sounds, and I think the foundation is strong. We certainly have uh, a president who has unconventional views. Maybe, maybe some people say that about us, too. Um, certainly, I think people do. Um, I want to remind uh, everyone in the audience that uh, and all of the attendees that you can ask questions. We will have a Q&A uh, session a little bit later. So if you go ahead and a question comes to your mind, feel free to put it in the Q&A box and I will get to it if there is time. Let's talk some about the South China Sea. I mean, that's an issue that Vietnam, um, you know, faces Philippines, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, I, I believe, uh, other, other countries in the region, and of course, China. Um, we have seen since the coronavirus, um, and, and perhaps this is because China views this as a good time to make hay while the sun shines, while you know, other countries are distracted, we have seen some additional activities in the South China Sea, where you know, China can, continues to try to assert its sovereignty over the entire, uh, over the entire um, region right there. What has the U.S. done to push back against any country's um, claims that are not supported by international law? Where has the U.S. fallen short? And what role does the U.S. have to play uh, in a place where we don't actually have any claims? 
Well, I, I, actually, I think that last point is important because uh, no one can accuse us of trying to uh, promote our own claims over somebody else's. We are actually there to promote the free and open order, the, the rule of law, uh, as, as uh, uh, described in the UN Conventional Law of the Sea. Well, look, we, I, I think we've done a lot. Um, we inherited, uh, the Trump administration inherited a, a pretty difficult hand in that the uh, land reclamation in the, among the outposts in the South China Sea and the militarization was already underway. So facts on the ground were changing. Um, but I think after coming into office, what you've seen is an increase of freedom of navigation operations, not only in, in sort of total numbers, but in terms of the complexity of them, you know, simultaneous air and, and sea challenges to illegal claims. Uh, you've seen more joint patrols, joint operations with like-minded countries. Uh, remember, you don't have to go inside a 12 nautical mile claim if you believe, as I do, and as your question suggested, that China's claiming everything inside the nine dash line. That means any maneuver in that area is a freedom of navigation operation of sorts. Um, we have taken steps uh, diplomatically. Secretary uh, Pompeo recently made the determination on rejecting uh, China's legal claims in the South China Sea. So it goes beyond just recognizing the tribunal decision that supported the Philippines. It's an outright rejection of China's claims, which is a significant step because historically we've stayed neutral where there's sovereignty disputes. Um, but look, the real question is how is, is what we're doing sustainable because the Chinese having changed some facts on the ground, all they need to do is, is uh, see a little bit of diminished support, a little bit of blind eye to their assertiveness and, and more and more over time, they can claim that they have control of the area. So when countries enter the, wherever that nine dash line is in the water, um, uh, when, when countries cross that, they're often greeted by the Chinese, welcoming them, welcoming them to Chinese sovereign territory. As long as nobody changes their behavior or patterns of operation, that's a fiction. If we start to be, um, uh, supportive of, of these Chinese maneuvers, uh, then they'll start to pocket these gains and over time they will have won. So it's about sustaining our level of, of operations and, and ensuring that other countries have confidence in the same. Is it true that Chinese military installations on these artificial islands do pose a kind of deterrent um, in considering U.S. defense capabilities there? So in a, in a so-called hot war, an actual conflict, um, these are not terribly significant. Um, they're small, they're isolated, they're very difficult to defend. They're pretty well made for our uh, military systems to deal with. I, I'm not gonna say by lunchtime, but I think pretty early in a conflict, we'd be able to take care of them if it was a hot war. Um, you know, people talk about our aircraft carriers being vulnerable. Well, at least our aircraft carriers move. I mean, these islands are smaller than, in some cases, than a carrier, in some cases about the same size, and uh, they don't move. So they're pretty vulnerable. The, the, so the real question is, does this give them a, a power projection capability that helps them exert and uh, really promote an illegal expansive sovereignty claim? And that is, you know, everything inside the nine dash line. And that's where our behavior and the behavior of others really becomes key. Uh, again, if we start to acquiesce, if we start to be overly deferential to these claims, um, then, then we're in trouble, um, which is why I think the United States needs to be there as well, because uh, these, these militarized outposts um, 
could potentially pose a threat to the United States assets, but again, not in a hot war. But I think for other countries, they'd have less confidence without us there. Shouldn't the U.S. join the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea? Um, because we're not a member of that, uh, we don't have, for example, a representative in ITLOS, the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. It, it seems like an, an easy way to put our money where our mouth is. Shouldn't we join it? Yeah, uh, I personally support it. Um, but look, since uh, the United States signed it but didn't ratify it, we've always honored it. And as uh, uh, my uh, friend and uh, mentor, Ambassador Harry Harris, used to say, I'd rather be the country that signs it and didn't ratify it, but honors it, rather than the country that, that signed it, ratified it, and doesn't honor it and, and violates it all the time. And of course, uh, that's the difference between the United States and China. We actually uphold the international law. Let's uh, sort of pivot to Taiwan. Uh, a number of observers, including myself, um, have begun to think or feel that Taiwan may be in play. Um, we have seen really hawkish statements uh, coming from China. Xi Jinping has, of course, uh, made the unification of Taiwan with the mainland, uh, you know, potentially something he, that he himself wants to bring. Is Taiwan in play? I think it's, there are increasing threats to Taiwan. And um, I think it's important for us to be vigilant and, and be a good partner to Taiwan through implementation of the Taiwan Relations Act. And I think essentially that's what we're seeing. Uh, in the Trump administration, you've seen increased arms sales. You've seen increased signs of political support, such as the recent visit of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, there are things we don't talk a lot about publicly, but uh, enhanced dialogue between our militaries. Uh, to help Taiwan implement its own defense strategy, the so-called overall defense concept. Um, uh, we were talking a little bit before this event about Taiwan's defensive advantages. Um, 80 nautical miles of water, mountainous, inhospitable terrain is a pretty good opening bid before you buy a single weapon system. Because at the end of the day, it, it's basically axiomatic. You, you have to have soldiers on the ground with rifles and bayonets taking ground and holding ground in order to actually uh, exert sovereignty. And so while China's power projection, which is basically built on ballistic and cruise missiles, can do a lot to damage, destroy, punish, et cetera, they still have to get hundreds of thousands of people across the Taiwan Strait in order to uh, prevail. And I think that's highly questionable in an amphibious attack. I think it's highly questionable in an aerial assault. I think it becomes even more so if Taiwan invests in the right things. And I believe they are, they are doing that. Coastal defense uh, missile systems, uh, short-range mobile surface-to-air missiles. These are relatively cheap compared to the expense that China's going to have to pour into strategic lift. So I, I'm probably uh, at times an outlier on this. I think Taiwan is, is very defensible if they buy the right things and if we do what we need to do to support them. I think one of the concerns is it's not just from the Chinese side, but also just looking at the United States. We are really embroiled in our own political struggles. We're exhausted from years of a protracted war in the Middle East. I think there's really deep concern uh, or a deep belief that Americans would not send their children to die would not, and would not themselves choose to go die for a small island uh, or a large island. Um, yeah. Even for one that we're close to, even for one that's a democracy. And that is, I think, something it seems to me that Xi Jinping himself has identified. What do you have to say to that? Well, I, I think that's a huge gamble. 
Um, look, I think the United States is often characterized as reluctant warriors and, um, you know, would, would much prefer to avoid a fight. And I, I, I personally, as strong a supporter as I am of U.S.-Taiwan relations, certainly not a place that I want to see our country go to war if we can avoid it, which is why I think the deterrent capability is, is an important part of the equation. We want the Chinese to think not today, not tomorrow, not, not next week, not next year, um, because of how difficult it would be for them to obtain their objectives. But look, if you're going to count on the United States not being involved, you'd have to say, um, you know, that why that aberration now? We Every other crisis in the Taiwan Strait, we've had some level of involvement. In some cases, uh, actually sailing the Seventh Fleet uh, through the Taiwan Strait during the uh, Korean crisis when, when Mao Zedong was getting some ideas, uh, the uh, uh, offshore islands crisis, we provided support uh, to Taiwan. Our, our AIT uh, director, Brent Christensen, just joined President Tsai for uh, uh, recognition of that those events, the second crisis in 1958. 1996, we sent two carriers to the region. So if you're going to gamble everything on the United States not being there, I think it's a pretty risky gamble. And, you know, for a lot of past scenarios, prior to conflict, many Americans would have come up with the same answer. Would we go to war for Kuwait? Would we go to war for South Korea? Dean Atchison had said it was outside our vital national interests or by omission, at least gave that impression. So I, that's a pretty big gamble. And I think given the historic ties between the United States and Taiwan, it's not one I, th I think they should take. And just finally on this point, I think it's part of the, the Chinese sort of win without fighting strategy and use of rhetoric to describe Taiwan as small and insignificant. It's, it's oftentimes in our top 10 trading partners. I think right now it ranks 12th in, in the world for us. Uh, your 12th largest trading partner counts. It's a place of 23 million, but ranking 12th in the world, that counts. Uh, 23 million people who have successfully transitioned from an authoritarian government to a democracy, a country that punches above its weight in so many ways. Look at the coronavirus and look at uh, what they have to offer, including direct support to us, by the way, when they, when they shipped masks and, and the like. So Taiwan does matter, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to if I was in Xi Jinping's shoes, make the, make the wrong bet on, on our willingness. Right. Um, that's a great point. And on that same note, we can also look at what's happening in Taiwan itself. Um, as, you know, uh, the, the younger generation grows up and just generally, the Taiwanese identity as opposed to a Chinese identity is getting stronger and stronger. And also China has made a terrible example for Taiwan in Hong Kong. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a great point, uh, Bethany. The, the Taiwanese identity is really a reemergence of identity in a lot of ways. When uh, the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek came over in, between 1947 and 49, um, they never, the, the so-called ethnic mainlanders never really made up a, a significant, no, I shouldn't say significant, a huge portion of the population. Maybe at the height, they were between 15 and 20% of the population. But of course, they suppressed Taiwanese language, Taiwanese history, uh, culture, et cetera. And they, they uh, cinified the island, for lack of a better phrase. Um, as soon as Taiwan started to liberalize and open up, uh, it was easy to see Taiwanization coming because they had this strong uh, underlying ethnic identity, about 85% of the population. And as soon as they were able to express that and, and relearn their history and language, you could see Taiwanization coming. It is very hard to see re coming of Taiwan. There's 
there's no affinity for the idea of a future one China with Taiwan a part of it. Um, there's a, the, the polls are, can be deceiving because generally you get uh, over 80% of the population saying they support the status quo. But frankly, they support the status quo because they don't want to be attacked and they don't want conflict. If you ask the question, status quo now, what do you want in the future? The number of people who say status quo now, independence in the future is over half the population. The people who say status quo now, unification later, is in the single digits. And those numbers have been moving in the quote unquote wrong direction from China's perspective for a long time. Even on eight years under Mindjo, uh, Taiwanization grew and the aspirations for future independence grew. Uh, and, and I think you're right, Bethany, uh, as you laid out in your question, it has a lot to do with how China treats its own people, how it's treated Hong Kong. Why would anybody want to sacrifice the hard-fought freedoms to take a chance on being part of the Chinese political system? The, the U.S., especially in the past couple of years, and, and again, the past six months, has seemed to place an emphasis on raising Taiwan's diplomatic status around the world. We saw, you know, Matt Pottinger um, last year or the year before um, sort of try to help Taiwan keep some of its diplomatic partners, but he did that quietly. You know, now, as you mentioned, the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, made a, a high-profile trip to Taiwan. What else is the U.S. doing to raise Taiwan's diplomatic profile and what else should it be doing? Yeah, it's, it's a tough challenge because um, Taiwan is, of course, excluded from most international fora. And uh, uh, Beijing tends to pressure countries when, when they, as individual countries, seek to, to strengthen relations with Taiwan. Um, and there's numerous examples of that. Maybe one of the best is uh, China sanctioned Norway for almost a decade after they gave the Nobel Prize to Liu Xiaobo which by the way, the government of Norway doesn't even control, you know, that's the Nobel committee. Um, so it, it, it is tough. I think, you know, number one, Taiwan's doing a pretty good job themselves uh, of conveying the power of its own brand. And again, I would cite the success of dealing with coronavirus. You hear a lot of talk about the Taiwan model and how, how well Tsai Ing-wen and, and her government has done with that. Uh, I think we do on a case by case basis, talk to countries who, who have, diplomatic relations with Taiwan uh, about the importance of holding those. Uh, Secretary Esper this week will be in the Pacific Islands and he'll be visiting Palau, one of the countries that does maintain relations with Taiwan. Um, I think we also try to find creative ways to promote Taiwan's international space. Uh, for example, uh, the State Department has uh, a program with Taiwan where we do international work, but we sort of act as the hosts that give uh, or co-host at least, that give other countries confidence to participate. Because most countries want to learn from Taiwan and, and where it's had success, whether that be in healthcare, whether that be in women's empowerment, uh, whether that be in education and, and uh, high tech. I mean, Taiwan is a great success story and other countries are eager to hear about that, but they don't want to necessarily do that if it's going to be at the expense of uh, some consequence or sanction from China. So we have to find creative ways to promote it. Is there room for the U.S. to quietly talk to, you know, third, uh, other governments, third governments, to try to get them to restore their diplomatic relations with Taiwan? Well, I, I, I might say it a little differently. I think there's room for other countries to expand the definition of their unofficial relationship. 
Um, you know, it, it would be hard for us to say restore diplomatic relations if we're not going to do it. Uh, we obviously haven't done it yet. Um, so I think the, the key is, can you approach something that is more normal and, and more uh, constructive in terms of interactions and cooperation while staying below that threshold of diplomatic relations? And most countries have a lot of space to move. And I, and I think they're, we find more willingness to do that given Taiwan's track record as a good regional and international citizen. Um, so we do talk to countries about it. Um, and I think there's, there's more receptivity uh, among some countries rather than others. I think Japan is very interested. I, I don't make it a practice to talk about other countries uh, for them and their interests, but I, I know Prime Minister Abe, his, his brother, a diet member, Kishi, have spent a lot of time on developing relations with Taiwan, and there's a lot of promise there, and I, I think you could see it in other places as well. Uh, you, um, you recently wrote an article with Eric Sayers in which you advocated for what you call the a Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Can you tell us more about that idea? Sure, and um, I was happy to co-author it. I got to give Eric a little more credit. He uh, had the pen mostly and, and probably the, uh, the intellectual capital too, but I was happy to join with him in, in promoting it um, because I think it is important. Um, look, after the, the Russian uh, annexation of Crimea and the incursions into Ukraine, the Congress acted quickly at the request of the Department of Defense to uh, create the EDI, the European Defense Initiative. We have a different kind of challenge in China. I think it's, it's a longer term uh, and, and in many ways more consequential and strategic challenge, uh, but, the, but the pace and scope of it has been more incremental in most cases. So we haven't had sort of that shock to the system where it, it led to the need to create something akin to EDI. But I think the time has come given where the, the challenges are. And you know, I think what it would do is uh, uh, give us benchmarks, hold us to account, I mean, we say the Pacific's a priority, and, and I believe that to be the case in this administration, um, but you're only a priority if that's reflected in resources and, and that that is sustained over some amount of time. So PDI would give us sort of that benchmark to know that we're increasing our investments, that they enjoy a place of priority. And by the way, investing in the right things, what we point out in that article is there's a lot that is actually not that expensive and and you know, not that uh, high tech or sexy even, you know, forward uh, 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 deployment of logistics support and ammunition, uh, having the ability for, for uh, more dispersal through uh, access to runways and, and rapid runway repair and the like. I mean, these are not expensive things, but it takes, you know, a thoughtful strategic approach to think about where those resources can be allocated and how those, that allocation will help you sustain the fight and in an A2AD environment, the anti-access area denial environment that China's missiles create. If you do all that, the goal is not to then go to war. The goal is to have a strong deterrent so that China doesn't think about uh, sporty behavior in a way that, that threatens all of us. And uh, in that article, you, you specifically recommend that Secretary of Defense Mark Esper move to launch this um, Pacific Deterrence Initiative, or PDI as you call it, during the 2022 budget. So you really have a pretty clear um, a, approach there. You've laid it out clearly for the administration to, to adopt. Do you feel optimistic that this is realistic and do you think that there's support within the administration for something like this? Yeah, I do. And I, I'm optimistic because there's huge support in the Congress. Uh, uh, 
the, the chair and ranking member of the Senate Armed Service Committee have both endorsed it publicly, uh, uh, Jack Reed and, and uh, Senator Inhofe. Um, to the extent there's diff difficulties in the administration, really it's kind of more of a technical uh, issue about uh, budgeting and how things work. I mean, our, our services, where the bulk of our money goes when it comes to procurement acquisition, our services don't like to have their hands tied. That's, that's a bureaucratic thing. I get that. Um, but uh, having your hands tied in the right ways is something that I think the Secretary of Defense needs to exert his authority on. And so I, I think we'll get there. I hope we get there. I want to talk about the idea of an industrial policy. This is something that has really come up in our national dialogue for the first time in a long time. Doesn't mean we didn't have an industrial policy, but to, uh, address that debate um, with us. What's industrial policy? Do we really not have one after the Cold War? Uh, you know, what's this kind of, uh, what's the um, arc there of the US, uh, US industrial policy? Why do we need one? You know, there's a pretty broad spectrum. I mean, it generally brings to mind a, a government that's heavily involved in uh, directing the private sector and partnering with the private sector um, in, in a bit of a heavy-handed way and picking winners and losers. Uh, we, we don't have that type of industrial policy. What we do have is uh, parts of our government uh, do look at potential strategic investments and, and sectors to support. We do that through the Defense Department, through DARPA, through Defense Innovation Unit. Um, uh, what I think the debate is now is, is, is that sufficient? Is it fast enough when it comes to particular emerging technologies? Uh, for example, the, the uh, uh, 5G networking, uh, artificial intelligence. And so I think there's a debate now is should we be playing a larger role in promoting U.S. solutions or U.S. partner uh, cooperative solutions. And I think the uh, evidence is growing that we probably need to be more involved, that uh, we've fallen behind, or at least it's competitive enough that, that we can't be confident we have an edge where the government might have to, to uh, take a more direct role. That's starting to be reflected in legislation and, and the congressional views. That's starting to be um, implemented from the executive branch as well. Right, and it, it seems like China, um, or at least our response, or understanding of what China has been doing has kind of pushed us in this direction. It seems that China has, I mean, their own definition of national security is really almost indistinguishable from economic security. And that has led them, uh, you know, with strategies such as civil military fusion to, uh, you know, pursue a strategic engagement in certain kinds of industries and sectors. And, you know, it, it seems as though the U.S. and other democratic societies have had a hard time knowing how to engage with that and how, you know, we have this sort of you know, we don't want to be too intrusive. We don't, and we don't want to have system convergence where we end up just being a mirror image, right, of, of what China does. Um, how do you view um, how we should respond to a system that itself seems to, to really unify national security and economics? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's really one of the biggest challenges we have uh, because if you study uh, the military-civil fusion uh, vision and, and now the strategy that's being implemented, uh, it's quite comprehensive. And as you say, it's, it, it really is a fusing of the so-called private sector to, to the extent one exists in China and, and the uh, uh, People's Liberation Army and, and the people that are 
designing the future force and acquiring things for the future force. So it, it's very comprehensive, which to me suggests we need a comprehensive approach in response to it. And, and you know, I think we're piecing that together, but it's, it's slow and incremental. Uh, it involves uh, uh, putting some of the, the Chinese companies on the entities list and sanctioning them so that we are not inadvertently supporting military modernization. It involves looking at Chinese investment in the United States. So the, the reforms to CFIUS, I think, are important. But uh, as soon as the ink is dry, you, you need to update those and be vigilant about watching where the Chinese are investing in the United States uh, and, and elsewhere. It involves, I, I think, um, uh, ourselves being able to accelerate. Uh, you know, so part of it is kind of the defense side, right, and complicated and slowing the, the Chinese developments. But that's all for naught if you don't have your own game plan for accelerating your own investment and your own improvements and modernization. Um, so again, it's a comprehensive approach from China that really does require comprehensive solutions from the United States, and that's. That's going to be uh, that's going to be challenging, and it, and bringing in our own private sector, as you say, we we kind of have a different approach, and we don't want to be overly intrusive. But the vulnerabilities of our private sector become the vulnerabilities of our defense department if that involves our technology, if that involves our supply chains, etc. So it's uh, it's a big challenge. I just want to remind the attendees that we will be um, transitioning to a Q&A soon. Please do type your questions into the Q&A box. And if I can have you, if you have already submitted a question, if you can just retype that, we did lose our questions when we had to restart. So uh, be sure and put in a question and I will be addressing those shortly. Um, talking more about um, a way to strategically respond, especially in terms of innovation. I mean, I have spoken with people who are on the Silicon Valley side of things, um, who feel that actually the U.S. is already behind in certain key technologies such as AI. I mean, it, do, do you feel that we are? And what can what can the government? I mean, it, it seems you know government intervention tends to kill innovation. So it, there's a little bit of a paradox here. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I don't have much of a technical background to be able to say, you know, where that, where we actually stand. I, I do rely on the, uh, uh, the views of experts who I, I've heard those views as well, Bethany. Um, what I would say is um, we have to be more creative with the tools that we have. And if, if that's not sufficient, think about new tools. But, uh, you know, the Obama administration stood up. Uh, defense innovation unit and and we've expanded the Trump administration expanded its scope and its ability to um, uh, operate at uh, greater levels of resourcing um, I, you know I think that's the kind of thing uh, the kind of thing that NQTEL does you know which is sort of a hybrid uh, approach it's not the government being directive it's the government uh, surveying the landscape seeing where promising technologies might be emerging and then uh, giving some resource assistance, um, you know, I think those kinds of things will will help. I think also we we have an advantage of having close partnerships with some of the uh, other more high high tech uh, high high tech countries in the world, such as Japan, many of the EU countries, uh, Australia, and so our partnerships are foundational also to how we can approach this challenge. I think 5G is an example of that where. Uh, because of commercial reasons, we sort of got out of the game in ways that are we're, we're potentially paying a price for now. Uh, but we have strong partners who are in this space who can help us bridge the gap until we're we're back on a better footing. Okay. Um, 
a couple a question from the audience about Hong Kong. Um, what what can the U.S. do, and what can you know U.S. partners, um, people, countries of shared interest do to support Hong Kong? Um, and what do what does what does what does China's policies towards Hong Kong tell us about China as a as a growing superpower? Yeah, Hong Kong is a hard one for us because, um, in a way, the the die was cast in 1984 when the uh, Sino-UK Declaration was signed, which ultimately led to the reversion of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty on July 1st, 97. So they have sovereign control. So it's it's hard for us to do a lot. Um, and by the way, it's hard for us to do things that don't hurt the people of Hong Kong themselves. Um, I mean, the, the real sledgehammer in our toolkit, the Hong Kong Policy Act, which allows us to uh, determine that Hong Kong no longer has sufficient autonomy in the one country, two systems um, framework is not being honored. Uh, revoking that is going to hurt the people of Hong Kong as much as it hurts China. And, and I'm afraid we're on that track. Um, we have sanctioned some of the Chinese officials who are involved in the Hong Kong decision making. Um, we are probably going to look at uh, how we can bolster our support for those voices in Hong Kong who have aspirations for restoring some of that autonomy, uh, but it's going to be hard. I, I know that uh, the UK, Taiwan, and others have looked at uh, visas and, and pathways to citizen, citizenship for those in Hong Kong who feel threatened. Uh, I know members of Congress are interested in that uh, here in the United States. I think uh, there are those in the Trump administration who just don't want any more immigration, no matter the flavor, but I think we should really take a look at uh, providing safe haven for some of the real champions of freedom and democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, I think that's something else we could look at. Uh, I have a question here from Veronica Cartier. Uh, she asks, U.S. military base in Indonesia is strategically a military deterrence to block China, um, China's access to Australia, as well as closing the region, and she wants you to kind of address that uh, nexus? Well, we have an important defense relationship with Indonesia. I, I, th I think I heard in the question U.S. bases there. We, we don't have any U.S. base. Um, or was that basis? Uh, maybe she was asking about the possibility. Um, ah. but, but I think generally the question of the role of Indonesia here. Yeah. So we had, we had been self-limiting our interactions with Indonesia and the defense uh, ministry and the military for a while because of uh, previous human rights concerns. Um, we recently in the Trump administration were able to reach a decision to grant waivers so that we could interact in a more normal way with the Indonesian military. Um, not because we're turning our backs on the previous human rights problems, but because they're so long ago, that at least the documented cases are so long ago that none of those people are still serving in the same military units. So we were able to go to Senator Leahy and say, uh, we think it's important that we start exercising with Copasis again, and uh, he was willing to, to support uh, granting a waiver. So we're starting to operate in more normal ways. Um, we, we do have a, a, a persistent rotation presence in Darwin and Australia, and we've asked the Indonesians along with our Australian partners to come and be observers to those activities, and that maybe that's a base where we can do trilateral activities out of. Uh, the Indonesia-Australia relationship uh, over the longer term has been a complicated one, but it, now it's an improving one and a better one. Uh, and I think, again, a lot of this is, is interest-based. We all would like to see the free and open qualities preserved in the region. We all care about protection of 
sovereignty and the upholding of international law. So I, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the relationship with Indonesia, although, you know, the pacing and scope will be determined by our, our partners uh, in Jakarta. Uh, we also have a question here um, about cyber threats um, from Brian Powers. Is the cyber threat worsening and how does the U.S. handle it? Uh, I think the cyber threat is worsening in the sense of uh, whatever uh, defenses we develop and whatever um, uh, we do through public-private partnerships to shore up our our networks, uh, the Chinese evolve and improve and change. And um, so it, it's, it's another one where you have to be very vigilant. Um, I think when we put out our cyber uh, policy at the Defense Department, our cyber strategy, I should say, at the Defense Department, we talked about a number of things, uh, not just to include defenses. I mean, that's, you sort of have to do that, but when you're playing defense, uh, you have to be right 100 out of 100 times, not 99 out of 100 times. So you need more than just defense. So we talked about strengthening partnerships with uh, allies and, and, and partners. Uh, we had great work with Taiwan in the lead up to their election in January 2020 to ensure the, the integrity of their election because we cared about that, but also because we knew we had our own election coming around the corner and wanted to learn best practices from Taiwan, who's been under persistent threat for so long. And I think that that was a positive interaction. Uh, we also, in the, in the Defense Department strategy, talked about how cyber needs to be part of our arsenal uh, on the offensive side um, and how we integrate that into our warfighting and in our doctrine. Uh, and again, as I said about uh, uh, the PDI, you, that's not a step you would take because you, you wanted to use it or you wanted conflict, uh, but it could be a, a deterrent that helps protect your own infrastructure if uh, the Chinese and others realize that they are potentially under the same kind of threat. Uh, we have an, another question here about Taiwan, and this is from John Mills. How do we better communicate and encourage Taiwan and the Taiwan MND? Um, there's a lot of lecturing down to the Taiwan MND that's very counterproductive and makes some key personalities question our resolve. This is mainly in regards to prestige weapons. Can you maybe explain that issue for the for our attendees? Yeah, well... I think it's it's an important question um, because you know Americans and I, I certainly wouldn't limit it to Taiwan. We we have a bad habit of going around the world and telling other countries what their interests are and how they should approach their own uh, issues of defense and and acquisition, etc. Um, so I think our role, being not not a disinterested party, by the way, we have obligations under the TRA. We have history there. Uh, but our role is to give views and advice and, and uh, assessments of what we think would be uh, most helpful and optimal for Taiwan's defense. But at the end of the day, I, I agree with what I think is implied in the question. Uh, we have to be respectful of Taiwan as a democracy. They have a, a very uh, active legislature that represents the interests of the people. If they think their tax dollars are, are spent better elsewhere, at some point we have to be deferential to that. And so I know when uh, the Trump administration made the decision on the F-16s and the Abrams tanks, there was a, a portion of the, the Taiwan watching community that said, well, why would you support that? They should be buying these other asymmetrical capabilities. And in a resource constrained environment, sometimes it is either or. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, we can't care more than Taiwan cares. We can't want it more than they want it. And, and we can't ultimately have it the final say over where their tax dollars go. So we made the decisions we made and I think they were the right ones.
Okay. And a question here, interestingly, about Macau. This is from Stephen Jackson. Hong Kong tends to receive more press than other islands in the region, such as Macau. How does Chinese interference and interest in Macau and other islands, and I guess peninsulas, impact the U.S.? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, we, we historically have had less uh, direct interest in Macau than, than Hong Kong, uh, given that Hong Kong became such a financial center and a regional hub for a lot of activities. Uh, in, in fact, we never had a consulate in Macau. It was covered by the consulate in Hong Kong. So our officials there have always had responsibilities to jump on the ferry and, and go over and uh, check out what's going on in Hong Kong. Uh, but, but in fact, the reversion of Macau followed Hong Kong by uh, two years of 1999 from Portuguese control to Chinese control. It's an interesting place, uh, uh, world-class casinos and restaurants, but historically just not as many of our interests and financial interests and, and other interests have been tied there. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, China has seen the need to take as heavy a hand. They have a pretty cooperative, compliant population there. Um, they're hugely reliant on mainlanders coming into Macau to, to spend money in their casinos. So it's, it's, it's qualitatively different than what you see in Hong Kong. We have just a couple of minutes left and I would like to throw out a really enormous topic. And so please feel free to just, you know, respond in whatever way that you would like to in such a short time. But uh, one of uh, Xi, well, Xi Jinping's, um, you know, primary foreign policy initiative is the Belt and Road. And that was initially directed, you know, very primarily at Southeast Asia and continues to be really important there. What is the role of the Belt and Road or that, at least that concept um, in China's influence non-military influence in the region? Yeah, that is a big question with uh, three <laughs> minutes left. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I think their, their vision was that through provision of, of this type of development assistance, which in many cases is, are, are loans and, and not favorable ones at that, um, that they would basically bind the recipient countries in, in ways that would make them deferential to, to China's interests on a, a range of things to include military. So I don't think the Belt and Road was ever, uh, you know, exclusively economic. You see a lot of overlap with where the military has interests and potential access and basing. I, I think the implementation of it is, has been really mixed. And I think you've kind of seen a first wave of blowback to those countries that were early adoptees who then found themselves the, the sort of victims of predatory economics and unfair uh, lending that, that, really uh, 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 binded their political decision-making and, and in that way really eroded their sovereignty. Jim Mattis used to say, you can lose your sovereignty to a soldier holding a rifle and bayonet, or you can lose your sovereignty through a bad economic decision. And uh, I think you saw some blowback in places like the Maldives and Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, even on the rumor, you saw blowback in a place like Vanuatu. Um, so China has been rebranding and they've been trying to put a better face on it. And, and we'll see. I, I think the challenge for us is, has always been we, we can't meet them dollar for dollar. It's, there's no way, but we can uh, have more high quality development assistance programs. I think the Build Act is a step in that direction. And we can partner with other countries who themselves can bring resources to bear. So um, our, our um, uh, development assistance agencies working with JBIC in Japan, for example, or uh, partners in India and Australia. Um, so you, you start to get the numbers higher and you start to get closer to parity with China. 
but at that point, the quality of the, the programs hopefully trumps the, the quantity that China's saying they will provide, whether they do so or not. Great. Well, with that, um, that concludes our discussion um, for today. And I will hand this back over to Jamil. And thank you so much, Randy. Thank you, Bethany. Awesome. Bethany, uh, Randy, thank you so much for joining us today and for this great discussion. It was really invigorating. And, and Randy, it's great to get your insight. And Bethany, with your long experience, uh, both in China and working on some of these critical issues, it's really, uh, really been awesome. Uh, I want to highlight that our next event um, on, is going to be on Wednesday, September 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, which will be our NATSEC NICAP event uh, with Bonnie Jenkins, the former coordinator for threat reduction programs at the International Security and Nonproliferation Bureau of the Department of State. Um, and we'll be have more events coming up on both China's rise as well as on technology, uh, innovation, and national security. So more to come on that front. Uh, please sign up for our mailing list. Follow us on Twitter at Mason NATSEC um, and on LinkedIn. Again, Randy, Bethany, amazing conversation. Really appreciate you. Thanks everyone for being here. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.